Chronicles of Narnia. Any big fans here? Some of the best modern day parables of the truths in the Bible that you'll ever come across. C.S. Lewis was not only a wonderful theologian, he was an awesome communicator. And that's why it's uh, become even big in, in movies in the past few years here. It, it's a timeless message. One of, one of the books was Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that book, there's a boy named Eustace who has a, a come-to-Jesus moment. You ever hear that phrase, a come-to-Jesus moment? It's usually when somebody has to hear some hard truth from someone that they, they were, they're shocked by. You know, maybe you've been bad-mouthing the boss at work and you find out that the boss heard you. <laughs> and the boss sets up a meeting for you Friday at 3.30. Friday 3.30 is a come-to-Jesus kind of moment. Eustace, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, had one of those come-to-Jesus moments. Eustace was a boy, if you read this story, you'll remember that he was a brat. Okay, from, from the beginning of the book, you see, all, all Eustace thinks about is himself. He's rude to other kids, rude to adults. He, he's basically li- living in all kinds of sin that a child can live in. And in the story, they take the Dawn Treader to this place where Eustace gets out and he walks around and he finds this pile of gold. And he thinks, boy, this is everything I've always wanted for me. If I have all this gold, I'll become powerful and I can, I can pay back all the other kids who don't like me. Now, they didn't like him because he was a, a jerk, but this is his plan. So he falls asleep on the riches, but to his surprise, when he wakes up, He's become a dragon, a huge, awful, ugly-looking dragon. The, the, the riches, his sinful desires had transformed him into a dragon. And he, he tries to transform back into a boy. He tries to peel this skin off so that he can get back to being a boy, but he can't do it on his own. And there's a moment in the book when he comes to Aslan. Aslan, the majestic lion who, as we know, represents Jesus. And Aslan leads Eustace the dragon to this pool of water. And he tells him to undress and jump in and, and remove the scales. And, and three times Eustace tries it and he cannot do it on his own. He cannot do it on his own. Aslan, the character representing Jesus, says to him, you're going to have to let me go deeper. Eustace is about to have a come to Jesus moment. And Aslan takes his lion claws lovingly but painfully and begins to peel off those layers of dragon skin, the sinfulness. And this is what Eustace said about that moment. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, the skin, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than my attempts had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything 
but only for a moment. Then I saw I had turned into a boy again. This was a come to Jesus moment for Eustace. Only Jesus, Aslan, could deal with that sin in his life. And that's what the nation of Israel, that's what you and I are about to have this morning as we meet John the Baptist. We're about to have a come to Jesus kind of moment. level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is at the root of the trees, and every good tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into Thank you, Bill. John the Baptist. What did you guys do when you first heard him? A lot of you turned around. (laughs) That's exactly what he was after in the wilderness as he preached his message, a turnaround in their lives. And and for us this morning, we'll see how it applies to us. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. For this come to Jesus moment. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. We want to stop there. We're not going to unpack that a lot, except to say Luke was one heck of a historian. <laughs> That's why he goes to all this trouble. Say, this, this isn't just a fairy tale. This is right when this happened. These are all the leaders. And, and contrary to popular belief, a tetrarch is not the one who happens to be the best at Tetris in a particular area. He's a, a ruler of a fourth of a land. So that's what a tetrarch is. If you ever come across that word and say, what's that talking about? The area was divided up into four. These are the rulers. And all this is saying is, hey, this is something you can be certain of. The story I'm about to tell you happened in history while these guys were ruling. And we're going to look at what does a come-to-Jesus moment look like for them and for us today. And the first thing that is essential in a come-to-Jesus moment on our part is a step of faith. A step of faith. And we're going to go on at the end of verse 2 there. It says, The Word of God came to John son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The last we heard of John earlier in the book of Luke was in chapter 1, verse 80, where it told us the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. We don't know what age John was, When he went out to the wilderness, we don't know how his parents felt about it. They knew he was the forerunner, but his father was a priest. You know how hard it is to let your kids follow God's call in their lives sometimes? I mean, priests worked in the city, sometimes in Jerusalem. In some ways, it's a pretty nice job. 
Imagine that conversation when John says, guys, I'm going to the wilderness. I don't know, maybe his parents are like, hey, it's okay, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit since birth, so go ahead. Or they're like, some parents are like, no, John, what are you thinking? We don't know what they said, but he went out to the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. The, the wilderness was a, a big deal in Israel's history, if you'll remember. Elsewhere, John is called the Elijah who was to come. You, you know your Old Testament. Elijah hung out in the wilderness quite a bit, was fed by ravens, and he spent some time by a brook out there. The wilderness was the place where God had led his children through to get to the promised land. It was a place where God revealed himself to Moses. And it's where some in this culture, when John was around, believed the Messiah would appear. So this wild man's out there preaching. You can bet it's going to draw some attention. Some of them are wondering, as we'll see later in the passage, is this the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Chosen One that, that we've been waiting on? He was much like many of the other Old Testament prophets. Even though we read of John in the New Testament, this is still before Jesus died and rose again. So he's essentially the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The biggest, biggest difference between him and the other Old Testament prophets is the kingdom was nearer than ever when he preached. That's why he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it says he baptized people. It says it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, sometimes people have read that and struggled with, what kind of baptism was this? Because Jesus hadn't died and rose again yet. What, what did this mean? Well, think of it this way. John's baptism looked forward to the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, just as ours now looks back. If you struggle with that, think about Passover. Passover is the Israelites celebrated it with that sheep that they would sacrifice. They would remember the blood on the doorpost. That would what to Jesus? Look forward to Jesus, just like our modern day communion service looks back to Jesus. So it's not all that hard to comprehend what's going on, but he calls it a baptism of repentance. Baptism of repentance. What is repentance? When we look at the New Testament Greek word for repentance, we're looking at a change of mind about your relationship and your status before God. It's turning from trust in your sinful ways to trust in Jesus Christ. It's a change of perspective about your life. It, it transforms your thinking and your approach to life. And we're going to see later on in this passage that it leads to fruit in your life as well. That's a natural outcome of repentance. But something interesting about this baptism I want us to camp on. I read one commentator and this blew me away. What river is he doing this baptism in? The Jordan River. If you know your Old Testament history, what's the significance of the Jordan River? Absolutely. That was the river that had to be crossed if they were going to enter into the land God had promised them. And now John, preparing the way for Jesus, is doing this baptism for the repentance of sins to prepare people to enter into salvation in the Messiah that God had promised. Beautiful picture God's putting together here. There's got to be a step of faith in a come to Jesus moment. What gets in the way of that? 
What gets in the way of that more often than anything? Listen to verse 4, as Bill quoted, with passion. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. All that stuff about preparing the way, making it straight, valleys being filled in, mountains and hills being made low, crooked roads being made straight, rough ways smooth. This was common practice when a king was coming to town. He'd send out a team ahead of him to make the road as smooth as possible. They'd find the smoothest, less treacher, least treacherous route for that king to get through. That's the, the metaphor that's being used here. But what were the valleys and the mountains and the crookedness and all the things that needed to be straightened out before people could receive the Messiah? Pride. Pride. It was the pride of the people. Pride which says, I'm good. I don't need a Savior. That was the biggest thing that needed straightened out before people could realize their need for the Messiah. Verse 6, he says, all people will see God's salvation. That's unique to Luke. You remember Luke focuses not just on the Jews, but all people. He wants, wants that to come out here again. But pride is that obstacle. We know that all through the Bible. Right from the beginning. There wasn't always an obstacle to God coming in. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Up to this moment, there had been no obstacle. Adam and Eve have perfect fellowship with God. He could walk into that garden. They could fellowship freely, but the obstacle was about to go up. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That had never happened before. Something was in between them and their God. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That's new. Never before this moment had there been a... This kind of scared of God mentality. They were afraid because why? They had sinned. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The woman goes on to blame the serpent. But you remember the lie the serpent had told them? It all comes back to pride. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the lie of sin then and it's the lie of sin today. My way matters more than what anyone else says. My preeminence matters more than even what God says. That is the essence of pride. So verse 23 and 24 say, The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Yet another obstacle. Pride which leads to sin sets up the barriers that must be knocked down. 
John came to prepare the way for those barriers to be knocked down. Tim Keller says that there are many groups that are guilty of this kind of pride today. This is going to get convicting. As I read this, this made me do a lot of thinking. He said, as we watch the, the debates on Facebook or, or even in conversation today, at least a couple of the groups out there could be broken down this way. One is traditional. The traditional folks say, I must live a good life. And there's the progressive folks. They're all about self-discovery. And Tim Keller says that, in essence, many of these folks in both camps are hostile to Jesus. Because the must-live-a-good-life camp leads to self-righteousness. The self-discovery camp also leads to self-righteousness. And the way he breaks it down is this. The traditional moralist camp says this sometimes. The good people are in, and the bad people are out. And of course, we're the good ones. The progressive self-discovery camp says the progressive open-minded people are in, and the judgmental bigots are out. And of course, we're the open-minded ones. We progressive urbanites are so much better than people who think they're better than other people. We disdain those religious, moralistic types who look down on others. What's he saying? Whichever camp you're in, if you're in either of those camps, they lead to self-righteousness, which is pride, which says, I don't need a Savior because I'm good. Another band I like to listen to when I run, and I will not play it here because I think some of you have a heart attack. It's, <laughs> it's a band called Demon Hunter. They wrote a song called Fire to My Soul. And these lyrics, I think, sum up the pride that we're talking about. You promised you'd give us your word. We never believed it was true. And we pretend that we never heard because we still don't believe in you. We built a wall to keep you out, ignoring every word. And we saw your face behind our thoughts, but we're apathetic to what we heard. Why does it falter? Because we built it all ourselves. Why does it hurt so bad, forsaking all this help? Why are we choking on pills designed to heal? We threw our hearts away because we're too afraid to feel. Why does it falter? Why does it hurt so bad? Why are we choking on pills designed to heal? It's pride. It's pride. That's what it comes down to. John looks at these crowds in verse 7. He came out to be baptized by him. He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The picture is of snakes in a grass field. Now, I've never seen this, but they tell me when a grass field catches fire, guess what you see coming out of the field? A bunch of snakes. They're, they're getting away from the danger. These people sense there's some, some danger coming. He says, who warned you to flee from that danger? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see the pride of these people? They're saying, look, my bloodline can be traced back to Abraham, so I'm good. I'm good. Just by, def by that simple fact, I'm good. He says that's not the case. It requires faith. It requires repentance in this coming Savior. How do we do that today? The moralist says, well, 
I go to church. <laughs> I go to church regularly. One of my friends, Bob, loves to say it this way. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. I tithe. I work hard. That's how the moralist says it. The progressive says, I'm good. I'm just being true to myself. I'm, I'm open-minded. Both paths can essentially lead to pride. And the antidote to pride is humility and repentance. That's the antidote Listen to what these people say in verse 10. You can hear the humility. What should we do then? The crowd asked. That is the humble response when we're confronted with our spiritual need. What should I do? What should I do? They were being convicted of sin because as you remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and as he preached the Spirit's words, his conviction was coming upon the crowd. We know that's true even today, that the Holy Spirit is the one responsible for doing that in our hearts. John 16, 8 says, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now here's where we get to it. The groups that we're going to see coming out to John are groups that were on the fringe of society, at least a couple of them. They were looked down on by many of the Jews in their day. The tax collectors. They were Jews, but they worked for Rome, and they often took more than they were supposed to. The tax collectors came to hear what's going on. The soldiers, especially if they're Roman soldiers, you can imagine how popular they were with the Jewish crowd. These are people that the average Jew would not want or think worthy of salvation. They're coming. They're the, they're the fringe. And, and here's what Tim Keller says. We, he talked about the pride earlier. Now listen to what he says. The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad or are out, nor the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says the people who know they're not better, not more open-minded, not more moral than anyone else are in. You see the difference in mindset? It's what Jesus said later on. I didn't come... For the righteous, but the sick. The thing here, it, there's nobody truly righteous, is there? But as long as you think you're righteous, you're not going to come to Jesus for help. Just like as long as you don't think you're sick, you're not going to go to a doctor. It's those who admit, I have a need. They're more prepared to receive the Messiah who would come. So these groups asked him, what should we do? John gives them some specific life changes, showing us that God cares about life change. He cares about social justice in our world for his children. Verse 11, he says, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. You know the people that need food and clothes. Share what you have with them. Verse 12 says, Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to. They worked within a corrupt system. Jesus doesn't say overthrow the system. He just says, you be moral within the system. It answers our question we sometimes wrestle with. We, we live in a world that often has a lot of corruption. What do I do? Live morally while you're here. Don't take more than you're required to. Be honest in your business dealings. The soldiers asked him, what should we do? 
He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Soldiers didn't make a whole lot of money and they had a lot of weapons. <laughs> it would be easy for them to come up to a helpless citizen and say, if you don't give me money, I'm going to accuse you of doing so and so and you're going to be locked up. John's saying, don't do that. Be honest in your dealings. Share your clothes. Be honest in your work. Don't force people to give your, you money. And I read these changes and it reminds me of what Isaiah said in chapter 58. You remember the people of Israel were fasting and trying to get God's attention and he wasn't pleased with this religious performance. And he looked at the people in verse 6 of Isaiah 58. He says, here's the kind of fasting I've chosen. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, listen, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. God cares about how his children live a whole lot. Bruce Larson talked about how we often have this debate between roots of our faith in Jesus Christ and fruits, the, the works we do. And it's unfortunate that it becomes a debate at all. He says, if somebody hired you to plant a garden, would you ask them if they wanted all roots or all fruits? I mean, how many of you want a garden like that? Just roots, please. Or just fruits with no roots. What happens to those fruits if there is no roots? It doesn't make sense. Faith is not opposed to works. It's, he says, one of the tragedies of my generation was the gulf between the roots and fruits people. One group talked only about roots, the Bible, commitment, Jesus, prayer. They had little social concern and little involvement with the pain of the world around them. Those were the evangelicals. In the other camp were the liberals who said doctrine and personal piety were incidental to a commitment to the cause of the disadvantaged and social justice. These were and are the fruits camp. Now, if all you have is roots with nothing visibly flowering from them, you've missed the point. But the other emphasis is cut flower Christianity, and when the heat is on, those cut flowers are going to wilt. Faith and works go together. Dallas Willard said it well. Faith and works are not really truly opposed to each other. Salvation by faith is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning God's salvation. You see the difference? There ought to be a lot of effort in our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we must not cross over to thinking that earns us God's salvation. That's a free gift by faith. But what I, what I see John saying here, biblical living is a far cry from what we often fall into where we want to just affirm everyone's choices, no matter what it is. And we want everyone to affirm my choices. I'm okay. You're okay. And let's just keep affirming each other in our sin. 
Jesus didn't come to put his stamp of approval on our sinful choices. He said he came to set us free, to set the captives free. When he looks at the sin in our lives, he doesn't see it as something that we should be like, I got a right to that. He's like, you're in prison. You settled for so much less than what I have for you. Don't settle for that. Come to me and I'll break those bars and you'll enter into a life that's so great you can't even fathom it. Jesus didn't come to leave us imprisoned in our sin. He came to change us. Lead us into freedom. We're not saved by works. But listen, when the Holy Spirit sets up residence in your life, you should not look the same as you did before. We shouldn't. The fourth point I want to look at here, and this is the most important as we look at these first three ideas that John brought across, is none of this come to Jesus moment is possible without faith in Jesus. It sounds simple, but you can't have a come to Jesus moment without Jesus. Verse 15, as the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. They were so hungry for this Messiah to come. There were some some stories going around town at this time, historians tell us that they believed if they could just keep one Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come. Or if the whole nation would repent for one day, the Messiah would come. They were looking. And they want to know if John's the guy. Verse 16, he says this. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. There's one greater than me. As he said elsewhere in John 1.29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.30, he said, He must become greater. I must become less. There's, there's one greater than me coming. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Him, you're going to be included in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit coming upon you and fire. What's the fire? I believe it's explained in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The farmer in those days would get the wheat in and he would, on a windy day he would throw it up in the air and the heavy stuff, the wheat, would come down in a pile and he would keep it and the chaff would blow a little ways down and he'd sweep that up and burn it. He's saying all who come to this Messiah will be kept and brought in and those who reject him will be destroyed. Strong words. I like this quote from a man, I forget his first name, his last name is Bach. He says, John illustrates how the proclaimer of the word should perform his task. The preacher must bear good news as well as news that exposes sin. Some preachers in the past tended to emphasize sin so much that one wondered where grace might be found. Today our problem is the opposite, being able to confront people with their accountability and culpability before God. John didn't have a problem doing that. He did it because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit lead him to say that? Because God loves sinners and wants to save them, but they cannot be saved until they realize they need a Savior. And that's why verse 
18 says, With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. He didn't stop with the bad news. He went on to tell them, the Lamb of God, there he is. Follow him. We'll close with a couple details about John's life in verse 19. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John did not care what anyone thought. He stood before the king of the nation and confronted him with his sin of having his brother's wife as his own and got locked up for it. Talk about a bold preacher. And some have pointed out that just as his ministry began with a long quote from Scripture, you remember the voice of one calling in the wilderness and, and ended in arrest that would lead to death? Same with Jesus. You remember Jesus went to the synagogue, quoted Isaiah 61, and he was arrested John walked in his master's footsteps before his master walked him. He, he prepared the way. And as, as we close, I want us to think about these four major concepts. One, a come-to-Jesus moment requires a step of faith on our part. Have you taken that step of faith? Have you taken God at his word and believed what he has said? To do that, we have to lay down our pride. Only the Holy Spirit can help us with that conviction of sin and that, that process. But you cannot have that moment as long as you think I'm good. I got this. I don't need a Savior. Humility and repentance, which lead to life change. It's the faith that saves us. If it's real faith, it ought to produce this life change. And last but not least, as we said, it comes down to trust in Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no come to Jesus moment. Have you come to that place. We've looked at his death on the cross with your sin upon himself and his resurrection and said, that's for me. That's what I'm counting on for my salvation. I want to close with a verse from 2 Corinthians 5. To all of us who are believers, just as John prepared the way for Jesus, he spread the message of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Just as John prepared the way, even with people on the fringe, the tax collectors and the soldiers, we ought to be out there loving those who need the Savior. Talked about Lecrae before, one of my favorite Christian artists. And he put this on his Facebook pages. I thought about John preaching to the fringe and I thought about Jesus hanging out at Matthew's house later on in the Gospel of Luke with tax collectors and people, the Pharisees. said, those are sinners, as if they weren't themselves. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Listen to this from his Facebook page. He says, my friends are addicted, clean, minority, majority, racist, liberal, conservative, Gay, straight, incarcerated, free, judgmental, gracious, lesbian, athletes, intellects, extroverts, introverts, insecure, and confident. I'm just trying to love them like Jesus loves me. What's he saying? Is he saying everybody in this group is okay and living right? No. But he's saying Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that's what my life is about as well. Just as John preached to all who would listen. We must follow in those footsteps as ambassadors of Christ. Father, 
thank you for John. I thank you that being filled with your spirit, he was able to speak your truth regardless of whether it was popular. And because he was filled with your spirit, it made a difference. Many did respond. We learn later on in the Gospels that those who were baptized by John later on went on to believe the things that Jesus said. And many of those who didn't, did not because they wouldn't lay down that wall of pride. John fulfilled his calling. The only reason we're still here on this planet is we've got the, the calling to spread the message of Jesus as well. God help us with that. And I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't taken that initial step of faith to say, yes, I believe. I believe I need that Savior. Help them to lay down that pride today. Say, Jesus, I receive you. I I receive your death in my place and your resurrection for my righteousness before God. I receive that. Now, now help me in the power of your spirit to live a life of gratitude that brings fruit from that knowledge that you have saved me. I'm not going to live right to try to get right with you. I'm going to live right in the power of the spirit just as a thank you because you made me right with God through your son. If that's you today, and I invite you to take that step. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Father, help us to be bold like John was bold. We have the same Holy Spirit living in us. Help us to live with love and boldness as he did. In Jesus' name, amen.